Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. From all of us at Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a safe holiday season. We look forward to sharing new episodes of Beef and Forage Roundup with you in 2024. Stay tuned and happy holidays. Brenda Ralston is a firm believer that applied research is critically needed today more than ever, and that colleges are an excellent fit to carry out this in collaboration with private industry, producer groups, universities, government, and most importantly, the producers themselves. Her guiding principle for applied research is ultimately, if the outcome doesn't provide a product or practice that the producer can implement on their operation to enhance their efficiency, sustainability, or profitability, then she's not doing the right research and not supporting the agriculture industry to her fullest potential. She has demonstrated this principle through her collaborative work with industry to assist in bringing market livestock pharmaceuticals that address animal welfare issues related to management procedures such as castration, supporting the development of an anti-bloat agent that can be used during grazing on alfalfa for enhanced gains, boluses to address metabolic disorders in ruminants and alternatives to antibiotics for the treatment of non-bacterial scours. Brenda is also interested in practical solutions to address antimicrobial resistance at the farm level for the targeted selection of antibiotic groups for better animal outcomes and enhanced antibiotic stewardship. After 35 years with Alberta Agriculture, as a district agriculturist, beef specialist, and most recently a research scientist, Brenda transitioned to Lakeland College in the fall of 2021. Brenda grew up on her family's century farm northeast of Calgary, where she remains today helping with their commercial cow-calf forage and grain operation with her husband Phil and 17-year-old son Mark. Brenda received a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture from the University of Alberta Master's of Science in Veterinary Parasitology from the University of Calgary, and a PhD in Veterinary and Biomedical Sciences from Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia. Today we're talking to Dr. Brenda Ralston about the project Scratching the Surface, Investigating the Prevalence, Nature, and Potential Causes of Itchy Cattle. Disclaimer, there is a high possibility that some listeners will experience the feeling of itchiness or creepy crawlies from listening to this episode. Welcome to the podcast today, Brenda. Thanks, Chantelle. I'm happy to be here. Can you share a little bit about your history and your background in agriculture? Sure, thanks. So currently I live on a century farm with my husband and son and mom just outside of Calgary. But as we discussed prior to the casting, um, my mom is from Manitoba. My grandfather uh, raised shorthorn cattle in Hamiota, which, which your family's from as well, for many years. And interestingly, when we went out to one of the farms in Manitoba for our study, they actually were familiar with my mom's family. So really a small world. On our farm, we raise cattle, forages and grain. And so that's kind of where my passion for agriculture came from growing up on the family farm and being in 4-H. After I left uh, the farm and went to the University of Alberta to take an agriculture degree, I worked as a district agriculturalist with Alberta Ag for about 35 years, also as a beef specialist and a research scientist for them. And a couple years ago, 
when Alberta Agriculture divested themselves of research. Lakeland College picked me up as a RDAR livestock research scientist. So I've been really enjoying my close connection back with the producers and the agricultural industry and agribusiness through my affiliation with uh, Lakeland College. I guess besides an undergrad degree in agriculture, I took an MSc in veterinary parasitology at the UC, and then I decided I needed to try something a little different. So I went and took a PhD in veterinary and biomedical sciences at the uh, Murdoch University in Perth, Western Australia. So I'm kind of a jack of all trades, a master of none, (laughs) and uh, perhaps uh, a slow learner. I had to stay in school for a long time. So that's a little bit about how I came to the agricultural industry. Your cow herd that you have now, are you still running shorthorns or are you on a different breed program? A different breed program. So my grandfather in Manitoba ran shorthorns, but my dad and just outside of Calgary raised Angus. So right now our family has a commercial herd of Angus, Hereford, a little bit of everything, Simital, Limousine, Galvey. We've got uh, that hybrid vigor thing going on. So it's a pretty mixed bag. Nice. That's kind of where we are at right now too. We have a purebred black Angus herd, but we also have a commercial herd that's kind of a little bit of everything. Right. Yeah. No, I think you've got to fit your cattle to the environment and and our mixed breeds seem to work for us. So perfect. Yeah. Can you give me a broad overview of what this project is about and what itchy cattle syndrome encompasses? Sure. I'd like to uh, first start with uh, the Beef Cattle Research Council. So BCRC, who's Canada's national industry-led funding agency for beef cattle and forage research put a call out for proposals to address itchy cattle. And they've generously funded our work and and really appreciate the practical focus that BCRC puts on the research that they do for the agricultural industry. When we talk about itchy cattle, usually December, January, February, producers may start to notice cattle within their herds starting to lose hair in patches. And this can be from a small percentage of the herd up to the majority. And it's especially concerning for purebred producers who uh, have animals that they're wanting to get ready for shows and sales. Also, a lot of the 4-H members get a bit concerned when they start seeing big bald patches on their steers uh, for show. And it doesn't happen every year. Some years are worse than others, but it seems to be in those cold kind of winter months that we see that occurring. And so many producers attribute this hair loss to lice infestation. So they treat the animals and when the treatment doesn't resolve the issue, the producer thinks that there's either lice resistance problem going on or product non-performance. So typically they'll contact their veterinarian who either goes out and has a look to see if they can figure out why these animals are losing hair. And lots of times those veterinarians will call AVL Solvet field veterinarians, because of course AVL makes one of the ivermectin products. And so then in many instances, the field veterinarians for Solvet will go out and have a look at the producer's cattle to see if they can uh, resolve the, the issue. So we wanted to design a project that was going to be robust enough that we could capture the causes of hair loss in these herds. And because we knew we were only going to have one shot with our producers when we went out to look at their animals, we uh, wanted to set up uh, criteria for which types of herds that we wanted to go out and do a full assessment of. So we contacted the veterinary clinics after our project was approved by BCRC and asked if they could identify itchy herds for us. And under our criteria, we wanted at least 30% of the animals within that herd missing hair or being itchy. And so when the veterinarians had producers that fit that criteria, they asked them if they would be willing to collaborate with us. And those that said, yeah, sure, we want to participate in the program, we had them fill out a survey looking at feeding and bedding systems previous uh, parasite product uh, uses and management. So that's kind of how the uh, process started. 
So then the next steps were once we identified our collaborators, we arranged to go out and collect a number of our samples from them. And they were very good. We typically uh, looked at 15 animals within each of the herds, 10 itchy, 5 non-itchy, and started to accumulate samples like clinical examinations. We looked for lice, allergy testing, skin hydration testing, blood samples, and liver biopsies, and then collected feed, bedding, and water samples. So that's kind of a broad overview of what we were looking at. Thank you. It's a huge project, and there's so many different aspects that you're looking into for this. And I know as a purebred breeder, it's a conversation that we have pretty much every year of, is there a problem or are they just itchy or is there lice or is it just a skin condition? So I'm really interested in finding out more about some of the causes of itchy cattle. And we're going to get into a whole bunch of that in just a minute. Besides producers, who is collaborating on this project with you? Right. So the main applicant was uh, Dr. Merle Olson. So he's the founder and director of research and a veterinarian with AVL Solvet, which is a pharmaceutical manufacturing company in Calgary. And he's also a good old Saskatchewan farm boy. So he understands, you know, the importance of looking at producers' challenges and trying to come up with solutions. And AVL Solvet also has some field veterinarians. So we had uh, Dr. Dennis Nagel and Dr. Larry Frisky. Dennis has owned his own private veterinary practice for 35 years, and he retired from that. And so he joined AVL Solvet as their field veterinarian. He's also a Saskatchewan farm boy, so we had some veterinary help out in the field. We also collaborated with a company called Schnook Contract Research, and they're a group of really talented scientists and technicians who perform much of the laboratory work and organized a lot of the field studies. So really appreciative to collaborate with them. And then my colleague, Andrea Hansen with Lakeland College, who's an extension specialist and research associate. So Andrea's role not only was to help out in the field, but she's also looking after a lot of the extension work. And the other interesting player that we had in the group was uh, Dr. Frederick Sabay with the University of Montreal in the veterinary medicine. He's a veterinary dermatologist, and it's really, really hard to find veterinary dermatologists that deal with food-producing animals. Most of them are cat and dog, but Dr. Fasabe was really uh, critical in helping us out to design some of our protocols because, you know, looking on the surface, hair loss is a is a skin issue. Uh, so we felt we really needed to have a veterinary dermatologist help to advise us on the project. So that was our, our happy little group. And yeah, we worked really well together. And it was uh, we learned a lot from each other, everybody bringing different skills to the team. And so that that made it really great. I bet that sounds like a great team to work with. I didn't even actually know that veterinary dermatology was a field. So that's really interesting to know. Me neither until I got into this project. I knew cats and dogs had them. He actually teaches at the University of Montreal as well. So he's both in the clinic and also in the classroom. So he's got a really great skill set. Interesting. Uh, What is the length of this project? So the project is about a two and a half year project. And since we had to develop the protocols to look at evaluating itchy cattle, because um, none of them really were previously developed, it wasn't something that we could take off the shelf. So what that timeline allowed us to do is it let us um, develop our protocols. And then in the first year of the project, we piloted them in a few herds just to see whether or not they were going to work, how long it took to implement all these protocols for collecting all these animals. Because as you recognize, the animals can only stand in the chute so long. And so we needed to make sure that we were timely in collecting our samples. So we, we pilot tested them in the first year. And then in the second year, we enrolled herds from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba to help us out. And is the project complete now, or are you just kind of wrapping it up? 
So our field studies have been completed. We're basically wrapping it up. So most of the work that we're doing right now is looking at developing the extension materials to get the information back out to the producers and industry. And you've kind of mentioned maybe a little bit of this when you were talking about the overview of the project, but what is the final objective of this project? Sure. So the the objective is pretty simple. We wanted to identify the causes of itchy cattle so that producers and veterinarians can, you know, take the appropriate measures to prevent or treat um, the itching in the herds, and then just to communicate those results back to industry so that they can move forward and hopefully reduce the incidence of itchy cattle for the industry. We're going to talk a little bit more at the end about where producers can go to find some of that extension materials. I'm just going to read a quick quote from the background selection of the project page for the project, which I found on the Beef Cattle Research Council website at beefresearch.ca on October 14th, 2023. And I'll include the full link to the website in the show notes for any of our listeners who are interested in finding it. So quote, producers and veterinarians have reported situations where cattle have lost hair even after being treated with a poron mectin product. This is often assumed to mean that lice are developing resistance to these products. However, some vets who have investigated these cases report that they haven't necessarily found lice. Besides biting and sucking lice, other potential causes of itching include parasites, environmental factors, nutrition, and mycotoxins. Breaking this down, what are some of the environmental factors that might cause itching? Right. So the first one that we wanted to look at actually was skin hydration. And so We wondered, just like you and I, how our skin gets itchy, you know, in that December, January, February time period when here in the Western provinces, it's it's pretty dry. We wondered whether or not this could be impacting our food producing animals and perhaps this was causing some of the hair loss. So this was really a a way out there hypothesis that we needed to work hard to come up with some kind of a protocol. So we look towards human advances. And so in the cosmetic industry, there's a piece of equipment called a choreometer. And basically what this uh, choreometer does is it can measure the skin hydration. And they use it in the cosmetic industry when they're producing, you know, lotions and hand creams and things like that to see whether or not they improve skin hydration. So we contacted a company down in Eastern Canada that actually sells these choreometers and of course, adapting this to livestock as compared to humans took a bit of doing, but we were we were able to do that. And so what we did with that is we compared the skin hydration between itchy patches on the animal and non-itchy patches on the animals to see if there was actually a difference. So that was one of the environmental factors that we we wanted to look at in the study. And and and, and we'll go into a bit of the results regarding that. When we were talking to the company that made choreometers and we told them we wanted to try them on cattle, they said, okay, Um, (laughs) they were a little bit horrified. They did, to their credit, send us a demo model, which (laughs) I was surprised. But yeah, we did end up buying one and using it in the study. So it was a really great tool that we kind of fell into and developed. How does it read the hydration? Right. So it it actually has a, a way of putting wavelengths into the skin and then through a refractory system, it, it comes back with a, a moisture reading. So it can actually figure out how much moisture or hydration is in the skin. And then it gives you an objective reading that you can compare. So it's uh, rather than just looking at it and saying, yes, the skin's really scaly and creepy looking. It actually gives you an objective number that you can run the stats on and compare within and between animals. That's interesting. Yeah. When you are linking nutrition to itching, what deficiencies come to mind? Sure. So when you read in the literature, you know, a couple of them that that uh, are are pretty easy to identify are zinc and copper. So keeping that in mind and the fact that we were only going to get one opportunity in each of our herds to collect as much data as we could, we we threw the net fairly wide. And so we collected blood samples and analyzed them for vitamin A, E, copper, magnesium, zinc, selenium, and molybdenum. 
And we also collected feed samples and water samples from producers at operations to look at the potential for high levels of some of these minerals to be tying up the absorption of others within the animals. For example, you know, high sulfate levels in water can tie up copper. High molybdenum levels can also tie up copper in in animals. So we try to collect as much information as we can. Luckily, uh, most, if not all of the producers that we were collaborating with were really on top of their herd nutrition. So they had, you know, feed analysis done already. So we, we took that. Some of them actually had water sample analysis already done. Some of them had actual printed out rations. So uh, we got a really good idea of, you know, what these animals were being fed and at what levels. And so we had a pretty good handle on, on their nutrition. I'm really interested in finding out what the findings were, but that's not for a while yet. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's coming. I we'll know, build the anticipation. <laughs> yeah. There's just so many pieces to this that even as a producer, I hadn't really thought about that you guys are studying in this study. Yeah. I mentioned mycotoxins in the quote. Can you share what they are and how they impact cattle? Sure. So mycotoxins are toxins that are generally produced by certain molds and forages or grains, usually in feeds, you know, that have been put up to wet and it allows the molds to grow. So the one thing to remember, I guess, is not all molds produce mycotoxins. So testing for potential mycotoxins in feed can be really expensive and difficult. Just because there's uh, mold in there doesn't mean that it's going to cause an issue with the animals. So typically mycotoxins affect an animal's liver and kidney function. And so instead of trying to do a bunch of feed testing and look for, you know, uh, mycotoxins, you may be testing for tan and it might be the 11th one that you didn't test for that could be causing an issue. So we thought maybe a better, more frugal and, and efficient way of dealing with mycotoxins would be, since we were already collecting blood for the mineral and vitamin levels, what we did is we took some of that serum and ran it through some liver and kidney panels. And they looked at function markers that would indicate the, the presence of mycotoxins. So you know, they are, are markers that if there was a mycotoxin that was interfering with liver and kidney function, we would pick that up on the panel's levels. And then we could go back if we felt that there was mycotoxins responsible for that, go back and dig a little bit deeper into the feed samples. So basically, we kept those seed feed samples stored away just in case we needed them. Because again, we wanted to have all of our information together because we were only going to get, you know, one, one shot at going out to producers operations. So kind of amazing that from the blood, you can determine liver and kidney function and then link that back to those mycotoxins. Yeah. Or at least it gives us an indication that something's going on. And mm -hmm. if we, you know, if you saw something in one animal, it might be just an issue physiologically with that animal. But if you were seeing that across, you know, a number of animals within the herd, then for sure, your spidey sense would go up and you'd want to dig a little bit deeper. Can you share a little bit more about how the study was conducted? And I'm just thinking in my head too, if you could run us through what it looked like for each animal, say, as they came through the chute, what processes were taking place? and what your team was working on when those animals were there? For sure. So the first thing that we wanted to do um, when the animals came in the chute is we tried to do the least invasive protocols first. First off, when we went out to a producer's uh, operation, we would have had an introductory survey done with them collecting information. And then we got into a more detailed survey, and that would have been done when we first got there and prior to coming to the operation. But once we started running through the animals through the squeeze, what we would do is a clinical exam. So basically, when we were looking at that, we would be body condition scoring the animals just to make sure that they appeared to be, you know, in good condition. We would score the hairless spots on them or the alopecia score. So we had a score that was from zero to 10, zero being not itchy and normal, 10 being really a significant hair loss, 
continuously itching, bloody patches on them, that kind of thing from scratching. Luckily to say there was no animals that there were that severe in the sets that we looked at. We also took photographs of all of the hair loss areas. So looking at what locations they were on the animal, we took it from different angles, trying to look at, you know, where it was on the animal, because there can be hair loss that's not associated with anything. So, you know, if you get cattle that are feeding out of a bunk, you know, over top of their neck, where their neck is rubbing on the top board of a feed bunk, they're going to lose their hair, but it's, you know, really not associated. It's a physical rubbing thing that's not really associated with them being itchy, but rather that's what they got to do to get at their feed. So we wanted to determine exactly where the itchy spots were. And the other thing that we did at that point in time is we did take some skin biopsies that we wanted and we sent away for some pathological examination. So that was to look at what kind of inflammation we saw in the skin and perhaps, you know, what was associated with that. So we did a really good visual examination. And then we started collecting samples. So the first thing, and of course, the most obvious is we were looking for lice. So we had six areas on the animal that we looked at for lice. We looked around the head, the cheek, the muzzle, the eyes. Then we moved our way back to the withers, which is typically where you see a lot of hair loss top line of the animal, and then towards the tail, head and back end. So we were looking, we had lice combs, and we had, you know, bright lights, and we were doing a pretty good look to see whether or not we could find lice. When we found lice, we would count them, remove them, store them in alcohol for for later examination, and to look at what species of lice were there. So that was our first process that we did on the animals. The other thing that we did at the same time is we did take skin scrapings because mites are quite tiny and you can't really see them with your naked eye. We did some skin scrapings down through the, you know, epidermis and got a good sample so that we could later put it under a microscope just to see whether or not we could find any mites. And we also took some hair samples off of the animals and and we could have a look under the microscope with that and see what we had. So after we did the preliminary look for lice and whatnot there, the next thing that we needed to work on was to get our allergen testing going. So basically what we did is we had to shave a spot on the animal. It was about, you know, six inches by six inches. It was on the loin area. We had developed a template, which was kind of like we went to the Michael's uh, store and, and bought a piece of foam, cut some circles in that foam about one inch in diameter, and we labeled each one of those circles for each one of the allergens that we wanted to test. So we basically tested seven different allergens. So we did a grass mix, an alfalfa, a mold mix, a weed mix a grain dust mix. And then we also had a positive control, which is histamine, which the animal always reacts to. And we had a negative control, which was saline, which the animal should never react to. We picked those allergens. There's not a lot of allergen testing done in cattle, but we thought those were the types of potential allergens that cattle would be exposed to. And so they seemed like a pretty common sense kind of way to go. So what you do with that is we injected a small amount of each of the allergens in the specific spot so that we could know which allergen was where and how to assess them later. So you just uh, put in a small amount and then basically you have to leave them for a period of time, about 10 minutes to react. And that's why we wanted to do that quite quickly when we started so that we had enough time while we were doing some of our other protocols to let those allergens react with the animal. Actually, after that 10 minutes had lapsed, typically what they do with allergen testing is you feel the swelling and compare that to the positive and negative controls. And you can also measure that swelling. But the problem is it can be fairly subjective and difficult to do. 
So we came up with an idea on how to be a bit more objective, which was to use an infrared camera. And so that infrared camera measures temperature. And so we could measure the different temperatures at the skin surface, which of course equates to inflammation. So it gave us a pretty good reading of how much inflammation was there and how much reaction the animals were having to the different allergens. So not unlike what people do when they go to the doctor to get some tests done to see if they're allergic to things, except they don't use the infrared camera to my knowledge. So they might want to pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that I've had allergy testing done before, where they've done that with all the graph and all of the different allergens. And the infrared camera idea is a really great idea to implement. That was Andrea's idea, actually, because we've had an infrared camera. We do other work looking at inflammation in animals. And so, yeah, it's really nice when you run the stats and you have an actual number that you can mm. equate to it. So while our allergens were percolating under the skin, the next thing that we wanted to do is do the skin hydration with the choreometer. So makes common sense that we had to shave the hair on the animals because obviously the choreometer wasn't set up to go through the amount of hair that we have on cattle. What we wanted to do is on the itchy cattle, we shaved a spot that was itchy on them and a spot that wasn't itchy on them. And we wanted to compare within the animal because there can be a lot of difference in the between animal skin hydration. And lots of times when we go out to the classes at Lakeland College and talk about this with the students, we bring along the machine and we test between various students. And it's crazy how much difference there is between people. And so we assumed there would be something similar between animals. So we wanted to do a within animal comparison. And then we also did do between animals and, you know, between herds. But it was it was quite interesting. I guess the question that it brings up, and we'll talk about the results on that, is what came first? Did the dry skin cause the hair loss or did the hair loss cause the dry skin? So that's something that we need to, you know, have a, a closer look at for sure. So we, we did the skin hydration and then the next step in our protocol, becoming a little more invasive, was pulling the blood samples for the nutrient deficiencies as well as the liver and kidney panels. And we know that, you know, serum samples are not necessarily the gold standard for determining nutrient deficiencies. Most of the nutrients or a lot of the nutrients are stored in an animal's liver. So really liver biopsies are quite nice, especially to look at copper levels. Some producers allowed us to do some liver taps to get some samples so we could test those. Uh, when you've got, and we had trained veterinarians with us who are pretty adept at doing that, so it's relatively quick. But, you know, from a producer's perspective, I give them great credit because when you tell them you're going to freeze up the animal, put a small incision in their hide, put in a six to eight inch tiny needle and pull a chunk of their liver out of them on their pregnant cow. That's that's a pretty good leap of faith on their part with us. So we really appreciate them letting us do that because it was pretty telling in our results. So we got that done. And yeah, so then at the end of that, we went back and looked at our allergen testing and made those assessments. So it took about 20 minutes per animal by the time we ran that through. So Needless to say, we were dealing with some pretty quiet cattle herds <laughs> to allow us to do all that. For sure. I'm just thinking about a six to eight inch needle. And it yeah. absolutely makes my skin crawl. Especially on a pregnant cow, you know, we're yeah. always really sensitive about that. But we didn't have any issues. Like I said, it's all, all to do with the skills of the veterinarians that mm -hmm. we had with us for sure. And the quiet cattle and excellent facilities. These producers that we were out had really great, you know, handling facilities. And it was kind of amazing how unstressful this whole thing was on the animals. So 
that was part of the reason we did the piloting in the first year. We just wanted to see, I mean, everything looks good on paper. And then, you know, you really need to go out and do some ground truthing with the actual animals to make sure that what you're doing. And of course, you know, everything we do has to go through animal care committee approval. So, you know, all of our protocols are very closely screened for the safety of of the animals. So we really appreciate that as well. Yep. And I'm thinking as you're talking about this, that a lot of the things that you're doing are things that are done in humans for different types of testing as well, right? So there is nothing that strikes me as being inhumane or upsetting necessarily, especially if you're working with quiet cows anyways. Absolutely, yeah. The biggest thing was to be very time conscious. So that's more what they're concerned about is being contained for the period of time. As far as, you know, any uncomfort from what we were doing, it was pretty well nil. Most of them like to be scratched when we were looking for lice. So (laughs) especially if they're itchy anyways. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You've mentioned that the herds were located in Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta. Was there a set number of herds per province or was that kind of just determined by which producers were willing to be part of the program? Right. So basically, we wanted to make sure that we had cattle from across the three prairie provinces just to see you know, if it was what we were finding was consistent across them. And so it was more a case of who was interested in signing up. I guess because of our location in Alberta, we tended to do a few more herds in Alberta, but we did get some in Saskatchewan and and in Manitoba. So that was great. And interestingly enough, we were at a Canadian and American Society of Animal Science conference this summer. And we presented some of the results from that. And this issue with itchy cattle is not something that's special to Canada. Our neighbors across the line that are in those northern states like uh, Montana and North Dakota, you know, same same issue. So they were really interested in, in what we were doing, because I don't think there's been a lot of, well, there hasn't been a lot of work done in this area. So There was quite a bit of interest stimulated even across the line in the states with the results of this project. Can you tell me what the blood sampling is being used to determine? It was used for the mineral and vitamin deficiency and then also for the kidney and liver panels. So that was the primary reason. And of course, we stored, you know, what we didn't use in analysis, we stored just so that we had it in case there was something that came up when we started to review the results that we decided that we need to run an extra analysis on. So yeah, everything that we collected, we hoarded away for uh, future analysis if we required it. So, What can be concluded from studying the baldness patches? The baldness patches, we were looking, of course, for lice from those, from those areas. And we found very, very few lice. And that's not inconsistent with what we basically had heard from producers and veterinarians in the field that, you know, when they go out to look at them, we found about 80% of the cattle that we looked at had no lice, no lice that we could find. About 17% of the animals had one or two lice per site that we looked at, which isn't really considered a louse infestation. But we we did have 3% of the total animals we looked at that would have numbers that you could consider to be an actual infestation. And But however, when we speciated the lice between sucking and biting, there, the lice were all sucking lice. There was no biting lice that we found. And interestingly enough, it's biting lice that are associated with itchy cattle. So we weren't finding any biting lice. That is one interesting result. The other thing is there really was no significant correlation between the cattle with lice and being itchy in our study. So We didn't see any difference in the number of lice between the itchy and non-itchy cattle. There wasn't a direct correlation there, probably because there was so few lice in, in both groups. 
yeah, so that was that was one of the takeaway messages I think that uh, was interesting for producers. The other thing that when we looked at the dermal hypersensitivity of the animal and the allergen testing, we essentially found very, very few animals that reacted to any of them. In fact, there was only one animal that reacted and it reacted to the alfalfa and when we were talking to Dr. Savey down in Montreal, he had done something similar with a cow that he had had brought into the clinic. It was a, a pet cow. So uh, he was looking at it. And it also had a reaction to alfalfa and nothing else. And interestingly enough, the cow that we had that reacted had also been bought from Eastern Canada. So I have no idea if that had anything to do with it, but that was the only reaction that we got to any of the allergens. And of course, there was no significant difference between the itchy and non-itchy cattle in relation to the, to the allergens. So then we wanted to look at skin hydration again. And so, as I mentioned, we were comparing within the animal between the itchy and non-itchy patches and also between animals. But we did have some interesting results there. So we did find that in some of the herds, there was a significant difference in the reading between the itchy locations and the normal locations. And so I guess this kind of goes back to the chicken and the egg we talked about, you know, which came first, the hair loss or the skin drying out, but something that we need to look a bit more at. And I think the other thing is that skin hydration levels were generally quite low across all the animals in our study. So it was a pretty prevalent condition across all the animals. The other thing that we did look at when we pulled up our mineral and vitamin analysis that we conducted, we did find that there really was no significant difference between itchy and non-itchy cattle with vitamin A, E, and copper. However, many of the animals were considered deficient based on requirement standards. So that's one take home, I guess, for producers is to be pretty vigilant on their vitamin A, E, and copper and selenium supplementation. And we found similar results in another study that we are doing not on itchy cattle, but on um, needle natal nutrition. And we pulled mineral blood samples from cows and calves and found even producers, you know, that have really great supplement programs. I think the challenge that we have with this whole mineral and vitamin supplementation is, is we've gotten more extensive in our winter feeding programs, you know, such as swath grazing and bale grazing to, you know, provide a more low cost feed to the livestock and to keep them spread out. So they have, you know, a lot of exercise and that type of thing. We're offering our minerals and vitamins free choice. And there's been lots of studies done, and actually we've done some too, looking at free choice intake minerals and vitamins across a cow herd. And even though perhaps your overall mineral consumption, so if you figure out that you've got X number of cows and they should be consuming X number of grams of mineral and vitamins per day, and those those amounts are being consumed of out of the free choice mineral feeder, on the individual cow bases, which is really what matters, we see really variable intake. You'll get some cows that'll eat two to three times what they require. You'll get some cows that may never go to the mineral and vitamin feed trough. And then you've got shades of gray, you know, in amongst the rest of the herd. So that's the challenge is how do you get a consistent level of minerals and vitamins into your cow herd? through these extensive feeding programs. You know, some producers do TMRs or total mixed rations that they have everything in there and they feed it on a daily basis. You know, those are certainly easier to get 
the proper minerals and vitamins, but that's not a program that works for everybody. And especially if you're trying to do bale and swath grazing. So that's the challenge. The other thing that I will mention when we were looking at the vitamins and minerals on the liver biopsies, and as I mentioned, you know, they're kind of the gold standard. We did find a significant difference with the itchy cattle having much lower copper levels than the non-itchy cattle. So the results there indicate that, you know, itchy cattle, copper deficiency could certainly be contributing to that condition. So as I said, the liver biopsies are kind of the gold standard. And so that was a pretty valuable piece of information that we gleaned. That's really interesting to me with the copper deficiencies. Yeah. And, you know, I've done some of these presentations and had some of the local feed company um, nutritionists there. And some of them have been finding copper being an issue in, in herds that they found as well. And it goes back to, I think, well, free choice intake, but also a lot of water sources are high in sulfate. So you get it binding up the copper. So even though you've got adequate levels of copper in your mineral that you're supplying, it's being tied up in the rumen so that it's not available for the animal to utilize. And the other issue is we have a lot of feeds that are high in molybdenum, which also can tie up copper. So these um, these nutritionists were uh, working with producers on water samples, feed samples, looking at that, and then looking at strategies like chelated copper to try and get it, you know, through the rumen into the abomasum so animals can absorb it and take it up. So there are strategies that are available for producers, and and that's why it's really critical, you know, that you have your support group in action for you. So, you know, the veterinarians and your nutritionist and, and, you know, run these scenarios by them so you can kind of figure out what's going to work in your operation to try and, and supply these requirements for the livestock. This might be a really dumb question, but can you give like an injection of copper to your cattle if you're running them through the chute, say for a processing day anyways? That's a really great question, actually. We're looking at at doing the sequel to this project, <laughs> hopefully. So there are some oral products that are out on the market, just new to the market, that have copper in them. So I'm always a big fan of oral supplementation, like individual animal oral supplementation, just because, you know, the less needles that we can put in cattle, like save those for the vaccines when we really need them, you know, less stress on the animals. What this project is looking at, it kind of builds on our neonatal supplement project is we're looking at delivering this oral supplement on the herd when you run them through. So my idea would be that, you know, when you run the cows through in the fall to preg check that you would give them uh, an oral dosing of, of the vitamin mineral. When you run them through again prior to calving to scour vaxum, that you would give them another one because recognizing it's stored in the liver. So these, you know, vitamin A, copper can be dispensed out of the body through or into the body by the liver. So then, you know, at calving time to go into the calves and give them a neonatal supplement. And then when you process them prior to going out of grass to give the calves another top up. And then, you know, at weaning time, because there's a couple of interesting things out there. So deficiencies or, or adequate mineral and vitamin supplementation has a couple of things. You know, it's believed that it improves an animal's immune system's ability to develop immunity against certain diseases. So you know, anytime you're vaccinating them, it might be a good idea to top that up. And that's kind of the hypothesis that we're going to. The other thing is that I've read in some of the papers that when animals are under stress, their nutrition requirements go up for copper and some of the other minerals and vitamins. So just when you're running them through a chute, there's always some level of stress. At weaning time, you know, there's levels of stress. And of course, at weaning time, when they come into the feedlot, that's exactly when we're 
you know, vaccinating them and wanting them to develop a great immune response to that vaccine so it protects them against disease. And those calves, you know, have been weaned. They typically have been transported, which they've never been transported before, perhaps. They've been commingled in the feedlot with other animals. And then lots of times they're experiencing new feed, like lots of those calves have never had a grain ration or silage or that type of thing. They've been grazing with their mothers, you know, out on pasture. So that's kind of the program. So we're trying to look at, you know, ways of individually supplementing at handy times when you handle them anyways, because of course, you know, every time you run an animal through the chute, it's expensive from the standpoint of labor and potential issues with the cattle being rounded up and ran through. So if we can do a program that incorporates a way of supplying or topping up nutrients in the animals without creating additional work or expense for the producer, I think that's a win-win. Yeah, for sure. I would definitely agree with that. What is being tested for in forage and grain samples, as well as bedding and hay samples? We didn't do a lot of testing of grain and forage samples. We collected them, but we basically collect, kept them so that if we found something that was abnormal, either in the mycotoxin screen or, you know, something really wonky in the nutritional analysis, we would have those feed samples and, of course, the water samples to look at sulfates and tying up copper. So. The one thing that we did do that uh, I don't know if producers are interested about, but we did test bedding samples. We screened them for straw mites. Do you want to talk about that? (laughs) Sure. What did you find? Yeah. So I don't know if I want to know, but. (laughs) Oh, well, so I had never heard of straw mites. I must have lived a sheltered life, but um Merle Olson, one of the vets with AVL Solvet, uh, he's really quite sensitive to straw mites. So anytime he gets around, then they live in hay and straw, he starts to really itch. So he was curious on whether or not, you know, perhaps straw mites could be causing some of the itchiness in, in cattle. So we decided that we better have a look. So we did take bedding samples. And it's kind of an interesting test. It's kind of old school. You you develop your own, what they call a Tulgren funnel. I'd never heard of one before. But essentially what it is, is you put one of those hot reading lamps on top of an oil funnel that you buy at the local farm store. And you put a piece of mesh over the, the neck of that so that when you put the straw in the top of the funnel, it doesn't all fall through. And then at the bottom of this funnel, you attach a 50 mil tube that you put alcohol in. And so that's attached. So the idea is that when you put the straw in, turn on the light with the heat and the light, the mites in the straw or the hay or whatever you have in there for the feed will go away from the light and heat source, fall down the funnel, because of course it's smooth, and into the alcohol. So then you can take the tube off the bottom, put it under a microscope, and look for mites. So the interesting thing in my mind is, you know, you've got you've got a, an ignition source, which is the heat and the light in the top of this. You've got a combustible substance, which is a straw, and then you've got alcohol in the bottom. So we were very careful. Luckily, we didn't have anything bad happen in the lab, no explosions or anything, but we were able to have a look at the at the bedding samples. And spoiler alert, we didn't find any straw mites, but we did look for them. So uh, that was uh, another little side analysis test that we did. I'm really glad you didn't say that they were like hugely prevalent in every sample you tested, because then I was just going to be like, I'm never going out there again. (laughs) I I have some really cool pictures, though, of lice that we did find. We did take some really great video of them. So I always make my audiences really squirm when I put them up on the screen and they dance around and oh yeah, it's a great, great video. (laughs) Looking towards kind of wrapping up a little bit, why is this information important to study and share both for cattle and producers? Right. What I think is important for producers to take home from this 
is that not all itchy cattle are caused by lice. The itchy cattle syndrome, if you will, is really multifactorial in nature. And, and basically what that means is it's, there's a variety of reasons that can cause this. So what we're going to be doing, I, the, based on our research, it indicates that we need to have a closer look at mineral and vitamin deficiencies, as well as likely uh, skin hydration. And perhaps we're, we're hoping to do some further work on this. People say, well, what are you going to do about dry skin? There could perhaps be products that could be put into oilers for the herd that are having significant uh, issues. There are some skin moisturizers that are actually registered for use on cattle that they're not sold on their own, but they're actually in products that, that are topical that need to be dispersed on cattle's skin on the surface. So there's potentially something that could be done there probably wouldn't work in an oiler at minus 40, but might work in an oiler at minus 10. And, you know, wondering how long you'd have to put that out there, you know, potentially there could be the addition of some type of oil seed or something into rations to help with skin hydration. So there's, we're looking, you know, potentially at maybe some practical ways if that's an issue. But the other thing, I guess, the message and how we're going to deal with this is we're, we're developing what I call a decision tree. So obviously, some itchy cattle likely is caused from lice, right? We didn't find, but there, there is. So what the decision tree would do is it would start out with the simple things, you know. So I've got itchy cows. What do I do? Well, run them through the chute, look for lice. If you've got lice, then yes, treat them for lice, you know, significant levels that would determine or be associated with an infestation. Sure. If there are no or very insignificant levels of lice, then, you know, there would be the next step. And we always like to go simple first, right? Don't go crazy and go for the odd and unusual. So then you would look at your mineral and vitamin supplementation. And, and depending on what we find, hopefully if we get this project funded that looks at individual oral supplementation, you know, that might be a way of dealing with it or working more closely with your nutritionist to try and increase mineral uptake if that's an issue or looking at something other than free choice to supplement free choice wouldn't take it away, but to supplement the free choice intake of mineral. If that doesn't work, then, you know, the next step would be something a little bit more extensive. So you may want to actually take blood samples on your herd with the veterinarian, look at the mineral and vitamin levels and deal with it. So, you know, at each stage going down, if the simple thing doesn't alleviate the issue, then uh, work your way down and into things like potentially mycotoxins, you know, running a liver and kidney panel, those kind of things. But what we want to do with the decision tree is, is start with the simple, easy stuff, see if that mitigates the problem. And if not, then dig a little deeper. Can lice develop resistance from poron products if they're being used, say, and they're not necessarily needed or they're being overused? And what other options might producers have if that is the case? Right. So I guess the short answer to can lice develop resistance is yes. There's a very good researcher at the University of Calgary that has made a career looking into that and done a great job. So that is a concern. So we want to make sure that we, when we do use any of these products, that we're very judicious in how we use them. So Producers need to consult with their veterinarians to make sure that they only use products when they're required, you know, when there's lice. And there are different products for lice versus internal parasites. You know, there's some products that are specific for lice, so topical, as compared to some products that, yeah, they do control lice, but they also control, you know, internal parasites as well. So if you're only dealing with a lice problem, maybe you need to look at some of the other ones. And to make sure that we're alternating the chemical groups to reduce the likelihood of of parasites developing, 
resistance, just like we do with herbicides and weed control, right? We want to we wanna alternate the groups, same principle, so that we don't develop resistance. So I think judicious use of, of products when they're required, make sure that we're using the appropriate product for the appropriate issue. So, you know, if it's only lice, look at some of the louse products as opposed to the full products that do internal parasites and externals and make sure that, you know, you consult with the veterinarians to to make sure that you're mixing it up a bit so that we don't end up with resistance being an issue. Is it possible to manage your herd genetically or through breeding or retainment selection to be resistant to lice, skin conditions, or allergies? That is a really great question. <laughs> and I don't know if... Um, I have all the answers to it. My thought would be to a degree, yes. I don't think we're to that stage yet here in Canada. But, you know, just some examples that I look at. Boss Indicus cattle, you know, the Brahmas out there are more resistant to ticks and likely lice than the Boss Taurus animals, which are the Herefords and the Angus and that type of thing. So, I mean, there are some some animals genetically that tend to be more resilient to that. Remembering that there's always trade-offs, right? What you're giving up for that. So in the case of, you know, Brahma in this country, I think the first one that comes to mind is winter hardiness. <laughs> as far as skin conditions and allergies, not sure. I know in Australia, they have a stomach worm that is homunculus contortus. It's, I love the name, but it is a blood worm that has become in Australia resistant to pretty well all of the internal products that they're using over there. And so they are actually exploring things like it's in sheep. Are there lines of sheep breeds or crossbreeds that are more resistant to it? They're looking at rotation on pastures to reduce the worm load on the pastures and to have rest periods so that the, you know, the worms that are shed in the manure die before the sheep go back in so they don't get reinfected. So I think we're not to that degree right now. I wouldn't like to see us go there. So I think there's more practical things for producers to do at this point in time which would be, you know, determining exactly what's causing hair loss in their herd and then plan accordingly with their vet and nutritionist. We've talked about some of the preliminary findings already. Yeah. When are the final results expected and where can listeners go to find these? Absolutely. The final results and the extension material will be available early in the new year. We're still uh, working on some of that the decision tree for producers. Producers can find many of this information. We're going to be putting it out into industry magazines and on websites, certainly on Lakeland College's website. BCRC has a great extension network that it'll be going out through them as well. AVL Solvet will be getting the word out to producers. And I've been talking in a number of producer meetings we try and get it around, but for sure, keep your eyes open for the websites and, and Google Itchy Cows. That information should be populating here pretty quick. Perfect. And I will try and link some of those into the show notes as well. Okay. If listeners want to find out more information or if they want to contact you, what is the best way to do so? For sure. So my email address is brenda.ralston, R-A-L-S-T-O-N, at lakelandcollege.ca. So you can always email me. I'm happy to respond or give me a call at 403-660-7885. Or if you want to pop onto Lakeland College uh, website under Applied Research, we've got information and links there to some of our, our media. So yeah, they can they can find out information there. Have a look at their mineral and vitamin supplementation programs and and see if we can't alleviate some of the hair loss and itchy cattle. 
Awesome. And I'll make sure that your email and your phone number and the Lakeland website link are also included into the show notes. So if listeners are looking for those, you can head there to get them. Thanks, Chantel. You're welcome. And I just want to say thank you to you for the time that you've taken today. To be honest, this wasn't a topic that I was sure I was going to be super interested in when Mary Jane pitched it. But I think that the science behind it and just knowing more, like as we've talked today, I'm actually very interested in it. So it's been great. You've changed my mind on on whether this is something that I need to think about or not. (laughs) Great. My job here is done, I guess. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's been fun and and uh, I wish I could show you a bunch of my creepy pictures. It's it's always fun to see, as they say, pictures are worth a thousand words. But <laughs> I think we've got a good information and we hope that, you know, we can do some more follow-up work and get some good solutions for producers out there. But right now, you know, I think the things that we've talked about are kind of the indications of of what's going on in the herds. Yeah, it's a really good start. And it sounds like you guys have a clear idea of where else you want to study and what you want to focus on next. So I'm excited for sure. to see what you find out. Yeah, great. Well, we want to have solutions for producers and veterinarians that are, you know, economical and effective and easy to implement because um, if it's not easy to implement and it's too expensive, it's not going to be practical. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you again so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada. 